Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, political scientist Brian Kloss on corruption and power. More powerful people tend to be more abusive, tend to be prone to being jerks, tend to be more selfish. Is it that corruptible people are drawn to power or is it that power corrupts? The answer is, of course, both. What I worry about is the the normal people are just being absolutely repulsed by the systems we've built. If that's the case, how do we engineer a system to sort of make a more favorable balance? You know, Enron didn't get brought down by somebody stealing paperclips. You don't have the person who's taking a lunch break that's five minutes too long destroying a company. Brian, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for having me. You bet. I wanted to talk to you for quite some time because we have some similar past shared research interests in uh, political science and looking especially at multidisciplinary research, things that can be brought to bear in political science that some parts of the uh, of the academy don't appreciate <laughs> in terms of straightforward political science. So thanks for joining me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's a, it's a, it's fun to actually bring conversations into the areas where political scientists usually don't take them. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you get to political science? Here you are, you know, a nice Midwest boy growing up and what, outside of Minneapolis, right? Yeah, just a suburb of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my mom actually ran for the local school board. Um, and, you know, it's one of those those lessons of how small changes make a big difference. But she ran for the local school board. Uh, she won her election. And, you know, that was sort of it. I, I was hooked in policymaking. She did a lot with education policy. And then that branched off for me into <laughs> studying dictators eventually. But, uh, you know, for, for a while, it was just the local level and, and Minnesota politics. And then I worked on a gubernatorial campaign in Minnesota mm-hmm. uh, in 2010. So when she was on the school board... Were there any major controversies or protests during meetings that she had to deal with? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is the big the big shift because it was all it was all sort of, I mean, there were there were issues, right? I mean, she was dealing with some serious stuff occasionally with pay disputes or HR policies. Yeah. Every once in a while, you got somebody who was you know anti evolution or something like that, but no death threats, no harassment, none of the stuff we have with in uh, twenty twenty one. The the political landscape of local politics has changed, I'd say, quite a lot from the nineteen nineties. How do you think she uh, feels about the situation now? I mean, would she would she want to be on a school board now because that's the, that that level of service is needed now, or would she want to uh, avoid it because she didn't sign up for that kind of abuse? Yeah, you know, I I, I was in uh, in Minnesota over the Christmas holiday, and mm-hmm. I was just I was chatting to her and also to one of her friends who's a former politician, former former Republican state representative. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, both of them were just saying, you know, I don't know if we would have gone through this. And I think that's it's such a sad commentary on on our politics that it's just it's so toxic that people who just want to serve their communities are having to think twice. And I think we all should think twice about what that means uh, in terms of the leaders we're about to get. (laughs) The more people who have to think that way, unfortunately, and how how toxic and vile our political system has become. It makes it it makes it tough for you in one way, because. The most recent book you've written, which we'll get to, really is all about getting good people into positions of power. And yet what you're seeing at the grassroots level is the dynamics are actually keeping good people out of power, even when it comes to school boards. That's a real challenge. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing that I find disturbing about my line of work is, is so I left Minnesota, I worked in this political campaign. Uh, I decided to study much more broken places than the United States. If you can believe it, there are many much more broken places than the United oh, yeah. States around the, uh, around the world. And the thing that's been depressing over the last 10 years is just seeing red flag after red flag crop up where I've seen it, you know, in Thailand or Madagascar. And now you're seeing sort of, you know, miniaturized versions, but seriously alarming versions in the United States. And with the school board stuff, I mean, I think about my work in Thailand, where I talk to young, talented Thais who are coming out of the top schools, top universities, and they all say, you know, politics is where you lose everything. Politics is dangerous. This is where you cross a general, you end up in jail, you end up in exile, you end up getting harassed or potentially killed. And so, you know, I think what's happening in those types of places is they're just self-selecting out of it. And I think we're gravitating towards a world in which that's true, even at the local level. I mean, I, I was, the, all those videos of the school board members just getting berated uh, for just trying to serve their communities and keep kids safe during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger warning sign than I think people appreciate. I think a lot of times we have these viral videos that are like, oh, wow, that's awful. And people don't think through the ramifications of how that changes the landscape of our political class, you know, for a generation. And that's what I'm really worried about, uh, you know, in 2021. And even if there are so many people, perhaps like your mother, who, who would be willing to, to endure that, who would say, you know what, I, I signed up for this job. And if there's going to be somebody who comes in and yells at me and says I'm evil when I'm doing something that, that clearly is in the, the best interest of the community, um, I can handle that. But the death threats and the being followed home from school board meetings and having the homes vandalized, that you can understand people who don't want to get involved in public service if if that is the price to pay for it. Yeah, you know, I think this is where I, I was trying to think through this systematically for the the research I was doing for this book. And it was what I was what I was coming to the conclusion of pretty quickly was that, you know, people make a calculation. I made a calculation. When I was growing up, I thought, you know, I was the kid who wrote down, I want to be president, that sort of thing. I mean, I, over time, I quickly gravitated away from that precisely because of all the things that come with running for office and started to think about ways that I could try to improve the world, you know, out of the spotlight a bit more, not in the political fray as much, you know, writing columns and books mm -hmm. and being mm -hmm. a professor and all this stuff. And and, you know, I think what, what happens to a lot of people is they do a straight up cost benefit analysis. They say, I'd like to help, but it comes with all this baggage. Now, if you're a psychopathic, power hungry narcissist, there's no downside, right? I mean, it's sort of like, well, you know, the death threats. Yeah, the baggage is light. Yeah. And the, and the death threats are like, people are paying attention to me. People know who I am. So, you know, I, what I worry about is the, the normal people are just being absolutely repulsed by the systems we've built. And the power-hungry, narcissistic psychopaths are just as eager to go into power. I think, by the way, that this has always sort of been the case at the national level. In other words, I think like in the 1990s, I don't want to romanticize mm -hmm. American politics. It was vicious. There was opposition research. You know, Lots of bad things could happen to you if you ran for office. That wasn't true when you were on the local school board. And I think what's changed is that the the sort of toxicity of politics that used to be associated with you know running for governor or U.S. Senate or president has now trickled down to the school board, the local council, you know the the low level positions where we rely on 
public servants to do the job. And I think that's what's changing. And it's really, really worrying to me because ultimately those are the people who become the senators and the presidents and the governors. Mm -hmm. So the pipeline is what's been poisoned, I think, rather than just the top levels now. Right. And you've got to, you've been able to live in a couple of different systems that generally have had it better than most of the world, uh, the US, of course, growing up. But you ran off to the UK for your MPhil and DPhil at Oxford. Uh, why there? And in talking with colleagues who have stayed in the United States and gotten PhDs in political science here, what are the key differences? What do, what do you think you got from that that they missed? Or what do you think you missed that they got back in the States? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I've never been asked that, actually. I mean, one of the things about the UK that is on its face appealing is that the PhD is shorter. <laughs> so that's an important consideration. That's that's not nothing. Yeah, I mean, so I I I did my master's and PhD in about four years in total, uh, which is it was it was a fast track, yeah. but it was still you know it was possible to do. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a professor, whether I wanted to go into you know some sort of think tank or whatever. So I figured, okay, I'll, I'll go uh, do the degrees and so on and see see how it shakes out. But the other thing that I think is really nice about a system like Oxford is Oxford University in particular is that's very, very multidisciplinary uh, in a way that I think American PhD programs can be siloed. So, you know, I, I remember one of the most absurd experiences I had is I remember I booked my ticket to go on field research to Lusaka, Zambia, right? Which, you know, many people haven't heard of Lusaka. It's the capital city in Zambia. But I sat down at lunch at at the college I was at at Oxford and I said that, you know, I've just booked my ticket to Lusaka. There were eight people at the table. Six of them had been to Lusaka. Wow. I was like, this is an unusual, you know, admittedly, it was a area where the African Studies Center was located and all this stuff, but it's a truly global uh, group of people. And, and so I benefited enormously from it. I was so lucky to have that experience. But it's also what really shaped my thinking was that, you know, on all these frontiers of the research that I was doing, going to the places meeting with the people who are making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's a turn in American political science, by which I mean, you know, sort of the U.S. political science programs that I've lamented a bit because, you know, m- when I talk to friends who stayed in the U.S. and did it, there's a much more quantitative focus. And I, don't get me right. wrong, I'm, I'm all about data crunching and, and you know, using data in smart ways to find out the answers to important questions. But I also find it pretty weird that I meet people who study similar things to me. They study coups or civil wars, the breaked out of democracy or rigged elections. And they've they've done it only on a computer. They, you know, they've never met a general who right. plotted a coup or they've never, you know, met with a rebel leader. And, you know, I always say to them, I'm like, if you met a biologist who studied elephants and they'd like never gone and seen an elephant, wouldn't you think that was pretty weird? <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and so uh, I, I'm I'm very much of the belief that that going places and understanding people is central to answering political science questions. And unfortunately, that's actually much more of an outlier uh, than it used to be, where area studies and lots of qualitative field work used to be the name of the game, and still is in right. in much of the UK system. Yeah, there's two different issues there, right? There's there's the methodological issue, and then there's the the multidisciplinary issue. So, on the methods, uh, you're right. The the PhD program I was in in political science at Duke was 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 mixed, but there was definitely a heavy quantitative focus, and especially in the field, I think you would say you were in comparative politics. Mm-hmm. Um, that was relatively quantitative, uh, even though people were doing field research and things such that 
you know, we had a healthy statistics requirement in the PhD program. So I recall one class I took, I think it was second semester of graduate statistics, and it was a political science teaching it, but he was clearly a, a math whiz. And I think his research had to do with things like how statistical sampling affected non-response rates to political surveys or something of that sort, which to me seemed like very far removed from the the actual working of real people doing politics. But I have to admit later, you know, that, that does give some real insight into what we know about political situations. But the class itself, tell me if you had an experience like this at Oxford. I'm sitting in the class and the professor takes an entire 75-minute class period doing a, a single proof, you know, doing a math proof on three different walls of the room are chalkboards. And he uses all three walls and he's explaining the proof as he's going through it. Somewhere in my mind, I know it's related to political science, but it's pure math for 74 minutes. In the final minute, he gets to the very end and it doesn't work. It doesn't prove it, it doesn't equal. And he just looks at it, kind of scratches his goatee, looks at the other walls and says, huh, I, I guess we'll do this again on Thursday. And I just <laughs> rolled my eyes and thought this, this isn't what I thought politics was about. Did, did you have any methodological experiences like that? Hazing rituals, if you will, at Oxford? Yeah, I mean, the ones that come to mind, they're not quite the same. And don't get me wrong, you know, I, half of my PhD work was quantitative. I built a data set and all this stuff. So, you know, I, I, I believe in the insights of them. I just think that they're one tool, not the, you know, not the tool. Um, I had an experience. I had just finished working on uh, a gubernatorial campaign in Minnesota. So I was hired as the driver. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was like sort of fresh out of college. I, I, I worked as a bartender in New Zealand for, you know, like eight months after I graduated from college. Then I got hired as the driver. I came back home, home to Minnesota uh, for this campaign. And, you know, I had a political science degree and I was competent. And soon enough, I was very lucky. I was promoted to the deputy campaign manager of the, of the campaign after a series of driving months working. Well, they eventually took me off the road. I was, I was doing policy director slash driver for several months. And then I <laughs> got put into the office as deputy campaign manager and the driving ended. But the thing that was so funny about it is then I went, I, after the campaign ended, we won. I go to the classroom uh, at Oxford and we did a week on, on U.S. state campaigns. And I just remember reading this stuff and I was like, this is so theorized, right? Like, this is so abstract what we're reading about. My experience on a day-to-day -day basis was like the candidate would have like, you know, an idea that would like pop into his head. And then you'd sort of have to just totally change tack. And that would be the strategy. And you'd want to make sure that like, you know, some of the stuff that you were doing was trying to make sure that there was you know, there was going to be a happy candidate at the end of the day. You're doing management of a person as well as a strategic campaign because it's just, you know, you're, you're not constantly operating under perfect conditions and you don't know exactly what's going on in the rival campaigns. You don't have a perfect grasp of what voters are actually thinking, even though you spend a lot of money on polling. And, you know, I would ask people, the guy I worked for, his, uh, his name is Mark Dayton and his, his family founded... Dayton department stores, and then the spinoff was Target, right? The massive Target Corporation. Sure, sure. And and so 
one of the things that was interesting to me was I, I would chat to people. We, you know, even as a, an office worker and one of the the top uh, senior officials on the campaign, we'd go out on the trail. You know, we'd march in Fourth of July parades and all this stuff. And I would chat to voters, and I'd say, you know, why are you voting for us? I was trying to get some feedback, figure out if our campaign's going in the right direction, because they'd say, you know, we're supporting you, whatever. And uh, they would say, like, you know, oh, we love your old department store, uh, your family's old department store, or you know that that ad of you uh, playing with your dogs and and the clips of you being a, a goalie when you were in college really spoke to me. And, you know, then I get into the, the classroom and they're like, oh, it's like a rational choice model and you have to like maximize, you know, your alignment with voter preferences. And I'm like, this is just not the same. And, and the policies, you know, I wrote several of these policy platforms when I was policy director and we, it was, you know, one of these early digital campaigns of 2009, 2010. So we could see the metrics of how many times they were downloaded. And some of them were downloaded like 50 times. And you're like, this is in a campaign where we're getting like 1.2 million votes. So, I, you know, it, it was a very good education in politics, actually, to work on that campaign. But it was one where the classroom version of it was so theorized as to be, in my opinion, unrecognizable. And it made me question, you know, what is it that is also like this? Because I can't have a firsthand experience for two years on every aspect of political science that I study. And I think it gave me a healthy, a healthy dose of skepticism. It's not to say that political science is not a legitimate pursuit. I mean, I believe in my discipline. But it's to say it's always good to have a dose of skepticism anytime you're reading an attempt to sort of distill down the world of politics into theories and rational choice models and quantitative methods and so on. And I, I, I've carried that through in a lot of my work, which is why often I write about things. and I say, you know, I think this is probably right, but I never mm -hmm. say like, this is the grand theory of the universe because I don't think one exists. And I think anytime that you get a bit of hubris intellectually, you need to really uh, take a hard look in the mirror and think it's time to step back and maybe have a bit more intellectual humility. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you're able to raise ideas and offer representative studies or examples, uh, but you're, you're not spending a lot of your time doing you know, detailed data collection and statistical modeling to determine uh, you know, the margin of error on, on, on the, the predictions you're making. So it's, it's a side of political studies that's very important, but for some reason, you haven't felt the need to stay methodological is is that is that to do not only with your personal interest which it sounds like but also the incentive structure within the institution you're uh, you're employed at yeah you know that's it's another good question uh, so there's a few things here one is when I was writing this book and I started researching you know what I could broadly call power studies uh, you know people studying why people in power behave badly or, or how power changes people and I was looking at it from you know, evolutionary biology to behavioral economics to psychology. What I started to realize is there's a lot of people who are working on issues that have relevance for my work, and I don't know who they are, and they don't know who I am. And, and that was alarming to me, actually. It was like, there's all these insights that I haven't seen that would have affected my thinking on this, and it's because they're just in a different discipline. Like, you know, they, and, and some of this is like they physically right. Right. are housed in a different building. Um, so... I found that really bizarre, and and I decided to just make this as multidisciplinary as, as possible, which is why I was talking to experts on bees and you know primates and all sorts of 
people who study hunter gatherers and all this stuff, just trying to, you know, hoover up whatever I could from other people's insights and, and understand how they might apply to the questions I was asking. I mean, it helps at my university. I'm in a multidisciplinary uh, department, so there's no pressure methodologically. It's not like you have to do it this way or, you know, we're not going to retain you as a, as a professor. And that also helps. I mean, they're, they're just encouraging me to sort of do the research I want to do, which is a great thing. It's a great fit for me and uh, it works out really well. But it, it means that, you know, what I end up doing is I draw insights from quantitative studies. I draw insights from my own personal interviews with people, you know, wherever they are. And you just try to like triangulate. You say, okay, we can't like be certain that this one paper is completely right. But, you know, if we have a bunch of different sources, different disciplines, different experiences that all sort of point in the same direction, you know, you might as well write about it and 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 suggest it as a possible hypothesis. And that's what I'm basically doing uh, throughout the book. It really seems like that makes the study of politics and national security and international relations richer, right? Because there are all these people doing research in in their silos in various places, and and yet the reading list for a graduate program in political science in the United States, it's it's largely political scientists. I mean, yes, they they throw in the obligatory E. H. Carr Thirty Years War, which is kind of history, but you're not getting core readings on biology, psychology, uh, other issues that might relate and. And that's why it's so refreshing to get a book. I remember it was probably 20 years ago. Um, I came across this book just wandering through a bookstore called King of the Mountain by Arnold Ludwig, who was a professor of psychiatry, it turns out. But the book was all about why, why different people become political leaders. And he does it primarily through bringing the research in from uh, psychiatric studies of humans and other primates and finding that indeed when people become leaders, they may have been rebels, they may have been disruptive and antagonistic toward existing authority in order to rise to the top of the mountain. But political leaders across all primates, including Homo sapiens sapiens, tend to become passionate about preserving peace at all costs, imposing martial law, stifling dissent once they become a leader. And that's why it was so refreshing to see your book, uh, Corruptible, which came out recently, because you do a similar thing where you you bring together insights from all of these disciplines to shed light on a, an issue that has vexed humans for thousands of years, which is, you know, why do bad people rule so often? And does does ruling and does gaining power make good people into into bad people? Uh, is it a personal thing or a system thing? You address a whole lot of tough questions by coming at it from from such different angles. So let's let's march through some of those. Um, do worse people? I think you you tend to use the the terms better and worse instead of good and bad. But do worse people tend to get power more, and why? Yeah. So this is a both and situation, right? So I, I sort of pose the question as a framing issue in the beginning. Is it, is it that corruptible people are drawn to power or is it that power corrupts? That's yeah. sort of a, the, the easy way of creating a false dichotomy. The answer is, of course, both. And it's much more complicated than that because there's an intervening system that determines which one operates more, whether that you know, sort of magnetism of power to corruptible people is blunted or amplified. And so, you know, it's a very, very complicated dynamic. 
I think the reason why it's so important to get it right, though, is because the remedy is different. I mean, one of the points that I always make is if you have an, an individual who's fundamentally corrupted from the beginning or they're a psychopath or, you know, they're, they're basically in it for the wrong reasons, that is a totally different solution to that problem that you need than if a great person enters a system and then because of all the choices they have to face and all the incentives they face, they end up doing bad things, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So, so my, my whole point is the diagnosis is crucial for the cure. And, you know, I think that it's, it's all of the above. But that's why I was really alarmed at how little of the reading outside of political science, uh, you know, political scientists do, because psychologists, for example, are focusing predominantly on individuals. They're saying, what's going on in your head? You know, why are you a person with the dark triad traits? I talk about this a lot in the book. The, the dark triad is uh, Machiavellianism, nar- uh, narcissism, and psychopathy, or being a psychopath. Mm-hmm. You know, why are those people better at getting power? And there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, you know, narcissists are very attuned to the people around them. So they have pretty high levels of attention paid to feedback. And so they can try to adjust their behavior. Psychopaths have superficial charm. They're good at making people like them for short periods of time, which is great for job interviews or elections. You know, these lessons are important. But you also need to have the system involved, which is what political scientists focus on, right? Is how do the sort of choice structures, the the incentives, the payoffs of all the uh, rules around you change your behavior. And what really struck with me in uh, what really stuck out rather to me in the the Trump era was how much of the US political science scholarship focuses on the idea of the presidency as an institution. It's like right. the presidency right. is this thing and it shapes people to behave in certain ways. And I was like, how do you how do you possibly explain 2016, you know, maybe 2017 to 2021 without talking about the individual. Like it's, it's insane. The idea that, that Trump and Barack Obama are, are fundamentally the same phenomenon because they both were presidents is totally backwards to me. So, and I know that's an oversimplification of the institutional argument, but mm-hmm. I mean, my point is that the individuals matter and so do the systems. And what I'm trying to get at is how do you sort of calibrate the right interaction? How do you create the chemical cocktail between you know, good individuals and good systems such that better people seek power, get it, stay in it, and then also power actually makes them behave well. And I think that's the sort of holy grail that I'm, I'm trying to find uh, in, in the book. And it's, it's much more elusive, <laughs> as you might expect, than is, is it's not right. some straightforward thing. But you know, this is something where I think the, the, the big questions has to be asked because right now we're just on autopilot and most of us agree we have bad leaders and that's just the way it is. And it doesn't have to be that way. You, you in your uh, research, some of which made it into into this book, you in your research talked to a lot of bad leaders, uh, mostly former bad leaders, but also those related to bad leaders, like the daughter of one of the more heinous people in modern African history, the Central African self-styled emperor, Bokassa. Uh, what did that conversation and the, the research that you dug into after it tell you about the possibility that corruption and power seeking is inherited. Yeah, so th- this is—I think this is one of these instances where it shows my method uh, in in the most sort of straightforward way. So I'm trying to answer this question: Is like, are power hungry people just born that way? Like, are, are, do you just have a power gene or a leadership gene? So the first thing I do is I, you know, I Google that and I try to find researchers who've actually looked at this. And lo and behold, there is a paper that's found a strong correlation between a specific gene and 
obtaining a leadership position later on in life. And they did this by comparing uh, identical twins with with fraternal twins as a way to sort of isolate nature versus nurture. Now, the the point there is somewhat unsatisfying to me because even if you account for some of these, you know, obvious things like being a man versus a woman or some of the other, tra- you know, race, et cetera, uh, you still have the problem of, are you actually isolating a power seeking gene or just somebody who's good at getting power? And they're not the same thing, right? If, if right, you're likable, right. if you're affable, outgoing, those things probably are very strongly correlated with leadership and they are likely to be genetic to some extent. But it's also not crazy that it is genetic because, you know, then I look around and I find species that have inherited dominance. And from zebrafish to mice, you can have uh, hyenas as well. They inherit dominance. And in mice, they can knock out certain genes and the, 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 you know, submissive mouse becomes super submissive. The dominant mouse can become super dominant and so on. So it's, you know, it's not a crazy thing to believe that this is inherited to some extent. But we end up with this sort of you know, it's a wash. We can we can tell that there is some genetic correlation, but we can't tell what exactly is happening because we don't have the black box of what the genes are actually doing. So then I was like, okay, well, you know, let me find some more anecdotal evidence, but understand what it's like to be born into a family of immense power and how that affects your thinking or affects your your traits in some way, trying to see, you know, what does someone say? Do they believe they inherited a thirst for power? So I went to Paris and I interviewed uh, Marie-France Bocasa, who is the the daughter, as you said, of, of this heinous dictator of what he called the Central African Empire, uh, mostly in the 1970s. Uh, and Jean Bedel Bocasa is his name. He, you know, he's allegedly uh, was a cannibal and allegedly served human meat to a visiting dignitary at one point when they drained the pond after he was toppled in the, in the sort of area around his palace, you know, they found human bones that he had fed to his crocodiles. So this is not a good guy. Beautiful game of Thrones moment there. Yeah. I mean, this is like serious power politics. Like your enemies stand up to you, you know, you get fed to a crocodile. So it's sort of on the extreme level of not just thirst for power, but also wielding it in an, in an atrocious way. And so, you know, what I was sort of expecting, because his daughter wrote a book, in, it's, it hasn't been translated, it's in French, but she, she wrote this book, it's why it came to my attention, about what it was like to grow up as his daughter. And some of the stories she talks about in his family are like terrible, like, you know, didn't do what he said. And so, you know, he lit their clothes on fire in front of him uh, and just destroyed all of their favorite clothes because they, they made some minor mistake. I mean, this is an abusive childhood situation right. with a guy who's like, apparently a cannibal. And so I sort of figured, okay, she's written a book about this. She's grappled with this. She's going to tell me her father was a monster. She's totally embarrassed to be related to him. And she, you know, vowed to never be like him again. And instead, what I found was this sort of weird psychological Stockholm syndrome where like she could in one sentence acknowledge that he had committed atrocities. And in the next talk about how she was proud to be a Picasso because the name commanded respect, right? It was a dominant name. Because I asked her, you know, are you going to, are you going to change it? And she's like, no, no, no. This is a name that everybody knows, you know, in the Central African Republic and they respect it. And she also, you know, so then I asked her, did you inherit any of his personality traits? And she, you know, she was quite honest about it. I mean, she said, look, I think I have his decisiveness on the positive side. I think I have this sort of boldness, uh, but I also inherited his temperature or sorry, his temper and some of these other traits that are not so good. And she, you know, she sort of paused before she said it because she understood this was not like a, 
an easy thing to talk about for her because she she recognizes she's got this imprint of this guy who did atrocious things. Were there any crocodiles nearby as you were talking to her? <laughs> were you looking around a little bit sheepishly? <laughs> we were at a little bistro near the Gare Saint Lazare in Paris, but it is it's funny you you mentioned the location because the reason we met there was because it's near the, it's it's the closest train station to the suburb. Uh, or the train, you know, the train comes in from the suburb where she mm-hmm. lives, which is just in the shadow of one of the palaces that he owned, where part of her childhood uh, was was spent. Because you know, it's a former French colony, so they have links to, to Paris and all this. So he, you know, stole all this money from extremely poor people, bought these palaces. She lives effectively in the shadow of the old palace, so it's like these constant reminders. And she said there was a, a portrait of him uh, mm. on her wall and she would talk to it every day trying to say, I think you'd be proud of me, you know, for, for what I've become. And, and she said, she's the only family member who will acknowledge that he did some bad stuff. Like the, the rest of them are just like, these are lies and, you know, et cetera. So she is the one that's the most balanced about him. And you were still yeah. finding yourself scratching your head here. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, the, what I was trying to get out of that experience is I didn't expect, you know, none of us can say, why did you do that? Was it because of your genes or your upbringing? I mean, n- none of us can honestly and accurately answer that question. What I wanted to understand is like, how do you think about this when you end up in the shadow of a super dominant, abusive individual? And that was what I took away from that conversation is that it's not something where it's quite so straightforward. As an outsider, I would have reacted, I, I, I hope I would have reacted quite differently because looking at what her dad did, I was like, I, I would change my name, right? I mean, I would try to pretend that I had nothing to do with this guy. Whereas she was thinking potentially, I mean, she didn't rule out the possibility of running for office in the Central African Republic and sort of taking up the Bacasa name and putting it back on the throne, so to speak. So, you yeah. know, but the, the point is that that was the approach I had throughout the book was like, I, I, I can't get a definitive answer from any of these sources. You can't necessarily know for sure if we did, if we did know, the, the, the book would have no point because these questions would be answered. So instead, what you do is you approach it from, you know, hyenas and mice, you know, the daughter of a cannibalistic dictator, the genetic research, and you cobble together a picture that, you know, it's probably a bit of both, but it's almost certainly likely that genes play a role. How much of the, and, and maybe the Bocasa story is, is part of this, but I think it also relates to uh, someone serving as a foreman of a jury or someone who decides to run a homeowners association or Donald Trump, perhaps, how much of this really is about perceptions of confidence that if people perceive that a, a would-be leader or an actual leader is exceedingly confident that we are inherently biased towards thinking that person is a leader simply because of the confidence itself. Yeah. So this is another one where it's, you know, it's like all the evidence points in the same direction. It's depressing, but it comes from a variety of different angles. So the most straightforward is they have these groups of people in psychology studies. And what they do is they sort of put plants in them where somebody who is wrong, like almost always wrong, but extremely confident is in a group. And then they have other groups where the person is a bit quieter, but is always right. And inevitably, you know, the overconfident person gets selected as the group leader. They emerge, they become the person that that they sort of defer to and so on. And their track record doesn't matter that much. Um, and, and I think that also is something that resonates with um, both 
non-human animals and uh and also <laughs> with with uh, our sort of stone age ancestry so i, I talk about meerkats in the book and african wild do. dogs and i Right. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be so enough to this... talk about psychopathic custodians and cannibalistic dictators. You, you have to you have to bring in <laughs> hyenas and meerkats. I have to say it was a fun book to research. So <laughs> the, the, the meerkats, they, they basically have this thing called a move call. And it's basically saying we should go over there because there'll be a water supply or there'll be food. But the the move call is more likely to be followed if it's extremely confident, and you can measure this, apparently, you know, meerkat experts can measure the confidence level uh, with which the move call is issued, and they find very strong correlations. You know, if somebody sort of suggests it, they don't follow. If someone says, "We need to go," this is definitely the right thing in meerkat language, so to speak. That would be uh, the one that would actually move the group. Now, with African wild dogs, they sneeze when they want to move on, but the status matters. So, if it's like the top dog that sneezes, they go. If 10 mm. low-ranking dogs sneeze, they'll also go. And there's a tipping point. Mm. And I think, you know, humans are somewhere between that. And and part of the reason for that actually, again, this is where, you know, it's new types of research that's being, uh, that I'm being exposed to. But I, I was talking to evolutionary psychologists about this and they were saying, look, you know, 100,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago, overconfidence was adaptive. In other words, it helped humans survive because, sedentary lifestyles when you're starving or you're dying of thirst are going to guarantee that you're going to continue starving or dying of thirst. So the complicated math they did at the time to sort of show the, the payoffs of different behaviors showed that following an overconfident person, but actually following them somewhere where they were going to try to find a water source or, or a food supply was on average more likely to make you survive than just sort of being cautious and, and, following the people who were only certain mm -hmm. uh, when they actually knew there was a water supplier or, or food source. And so the idea is that our brains are basically the same as the brains of our ancestors 50,000 years ago. They haven't evolved. Not enough time has changed. So there's an inbuilt evolutionary principle operating within us that we are susceptible to overconfidence because it probably helped our ancestors survive. Now, that sucks now, right? I mean, that's the, <laughs> the thing that's the problem now is that we have this thing inside of us that that makes us, it dupes us into thinking, oh, wow, they really know what they're talking about. I should probably follow them. And, you know, some people are more susceptible to this than others, but it's certainly on a societal scale, uh, this has a huge impact on, on following leaders who say, you know, sort of often wrong, never uncertain. Right, and right. Uh, we have plenty of those people in, in the boardroom sure. and plenty of those people in politics. In terms of the susceptibility that you just mentioned, uh, some of us are more susceptible than others. Is there any solid research, any replicable studies that you've found that show what those differences are in susceptibility? Yeah. So not specifically with overconfidence, um, but with Another related concept, which is the sort of authoritarian personality, uh, susceptibility to strongman messaging, um, which is, you know, it's, it's related to overconfidence because, of course, authoritarian personalities are pretty much always authoritarian leaders are pretty much always overconfident. They're always promising the moon and rarely delivering it. And so there is the sort of authoritarian voter personality that's been studied extensively in political science where it's, you know, people who want an authoritarian to basically sort out their life as long as they agree with it. You know, they, they don't have this sort of principled belief in democracy. They just say, I want these things to change. And I want somebody who's authoritarian to basically just get it done without 
the help of the parliament or Congress or whatever it is. So I think those people are more prone to those messages. Um, there's also a thing, this, this speaks to research related to conspiracy theories, but it also, I think, overlaps with leadership selection. This idea of what's called the Manichaean worldview in uh, psychology research. And Ma- Manichaean worldviews are basically the world is black and white. There are good and evil people, and it's that simple. And if you have this idea of this battle between good and evil, you have this belief that, you know, all you need to do is identify the good people and then you should follow them no matter what they say. And so, you know, the overconfident person on your sort of political tribe can be very seductive to those with a Manichaean worldview who say they're fighting evil, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, Mm -hmm. correlates enormously with QAnon and some of these other phenomena uh, that we have in, in modern society. So, you know, some of it is cognitive mistakes people are making, some of its personality types. We can't say, you know, with 100% certainty, but there are some clues that point to why some people seem to be more duped by other, than, than, than others when it comes to overconfidence and strongman leadership. That's it. That's interesting because it does overlap with the, the concept that's received a lot of attention recently. But to be fair, even in the American system, it's not new. Um, you know, the Whig Party was largely a negative polarization uh, against Andrew Jackson. And even now you find a lot of people who, who justify their support of someone whom they might not otherwise objectively because, well, at least he's fighting the other side and those people are evil. So we, we, we need them to lose more than I need to win, more than I need to benefit myself in a rational choice kind of way. We need the other side to lose. And that's a horrible dynamic when it comes to selecting good leaders. Yeah, you know, I, so I'll, I'll take I'll put the spin on this that's positive, which is, you know, I, I'm normally quite a doom and gloom guy when it comes to talking about U.S. politics because I'm very pessimistic about the current trajectory. But but I will say there's one thing about the sort of political tribalism and tribalism more in general with humans that I found, you know, potentially positive if we harness some of these insights in a better way. So two of the studies that stood out to me, one of them was this idea of you've got a group task that you're doing in a psychology study and you can look at the objective metrics of how well individuals have done on the task previously when you're picking who's on your team. Now you can then pick between somebody who's got a really good track record, super effective, but it's from a rival college. This is done with university students or from the same college, but they have objectively a dismal track record. And lo and behold, the people pick the person from their college. And the same is true in these in these sort of Good Samaritan studies where they look at, you know, whether you stop to help someone and whether you're wearing the same uh, football jersey. This is in the UK. So we're talking soccer, um, soccer jersey mm-hmm. as the team that you support makes you far more likely to stop and help that person. Uh, there's basically no effect. They, they, they're, they're funny research. They did <laughs> they did a, a one version with the rival football team and one version with just like a, a, a blue shirt. And there was no, thankfully there was mm-hmm. no difference in stopping between the blue shirt and the rival football team. Oh, so this is not just a Manchester United <laughs> exactly. fan problem. Exactly. This is a human but the, problem. You know, what I took away from those studies, like on the one hand, they're very depressing because like objective data doesn't seem to override our our, our belief in tribes when it comes to, you know, college students, which of course translates into the political world, into Republicans and Democrats and so on. But it also means that you can build coalitions of people that are actually quite malleable because none of us are born as, you know, I went to Carleton College. I was, you know, I liked the Carleton football team, but I was not born that way. It's just that I was socialized and believed, you know, we have to beat the rival. Um, and and I think that's the, the, the message that 
we we don't talk about right we we talk about okay there's negative polarization and political tribalism true and they've gotten much much worse i think more political scientists need to start working on precisely how you can build cross-cutting coalitions that make those more toxic dynamics less salient yeah. in everyday life and i think that's like the great challenge of the 21st right. century because we can we can actually get through to people on non-traditional uh you know tribal divides well there's one practical step that that can be taken for some of that bias it doesn't it doesn't get rid of the the urge but but it helps in effect constrain it and that is when it comes to hiring uh with resumes or when it comes to grading with papers and exams um i found myself this semester getting the the papers from students but i had their names blacked out so that i could not see the names just in case there is some subliminal bias that you know, whatever my in-group is, whatever the social psychologist would say is is my conscious or not in-group, out-group, that I'm not putting that onto the grading, just as the same way when you're a recruiter and you're trying to decide who who should be getting this job in this company, you, you want to find a way of eliminating that bias so that you can get the best candidate, not the one who's wearing the Manchester United jersey, right? Yeah. So there, there's sort of, I mean, I think there's a couple things here. One of them is just acknowledging that we're all human beings and we all have inbuilt biases. And, and the other is looking at how this in, in, uh, intersects with race and gender. So I, I think what you're referencing in the book is there's this there's a period where I talk about how a study was done where they took the same sort of caliber of CVs, resumes, same qualifications, and then randomly assigned either black or white names in one study and randomly assigned either male or female names in the other study. And then they sent them out for job applications and saw who got invited for an interview. And inevitably, as you probably would expect, you know, the white men did much better. It was a, signif a significant advantage to have a standard you know, white male name. Uh, when it came to this this practice, and there's no other explanation than than biases and racism and sexism because the, the quality of the interview of, of the prospective applicants was controlled. It was identical across the names. But you know, when you talk about the grading, so I, at UCL where I teach, University College London where I teach, this is automatic. I mean, it, you have to submit with a candidate number. You cannot put your name on on any essay or exam, mm -hmm. and. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just biases with with race and gender. I mean, like the students who talk in my class a lot, I tend to like, you know, I mean, it's not this is not some like conspiracy or scheme. It's just that the students who are engaged and attend and, you know, are really interested in the subject. Listen to your stories about meerkats <laughs> and crocodiles. The ones you laugh about the meerkats, you know, you're going to grade them. Yeah, higher. I mean, so right. that's why I'm glad that it's anonymized because I, you know, I would obviously make every possible effort in my sort of conscious thought to not do that, to not reward students who I liked. Or, you know, the, if, the, if the student who was always late and didn't show up to class wrote a killer essay, I would like to think that I would grade the essay fairly. But I'm happy I don't have to, right? I don't have to think about that. It's just literally, I have no idea who's written these. Now, the problem is that the insights for this work really, really well for big organizations. I mean, I think every single large company in America and around the world should totally anonymize its job interview and hiring process. And insofar as promotions have many applicants, they should be anonymized uh, too. You can't do this for presidents, right? I mean, that's the problem is that when you're talking about elite level promotion, uh, you can't anonymize stuff. But if you've anonymized it at the lower level, then you'd hope that the pipeline would actually be much fairer because there's evidence that this happens very early. I mean, I can imagine 
I haven't seen studies that have been as robust at the sort of, you know, elementary school level, but I've got to imagine the name stuff starts early. And, you know, the, the students, especially if they're, you know, the one minority kid in an all white school with a, you know, they're occasionally going to end up with a bigoted teacher and it can torpedo you. You know, it, I, I remember just from my own family experience, not certainly not from a minority perspective, but from just how, how much power a teacher can have. My, my brother performed poorly when he was like eight years old in some test and the teacher like suggested holding him back. And my mom, you know, she's like, well, how am I supposed to know? You know, he's my oldest kid. I, I don't have a better understanding. Maybe I should do this. And, <laughs> and she didn't do it. Uh, she, she said, no, no, no. I wanted to, to proceed. I mean, my brother went to Dartmouth college and he's like, he, he works at the Mayo clinic as a stroke doctor now. I mean, he's, he's certainly done well for himself. And, and it's like, one of these things where, you know, my mom was saying, I could, what would it have done to his psychology and confidence as an eight-year-old if the teacher said you have to repeat, you know, second grade. And so it was one of those lessons where it's like, this happens all the time and it happens disproportionately to minority students. And it tracks them in a way where, you know, we can really counteract it. So it's it's a perfect instance where like the solution is so easy. And yet no one, you know, very few institutions do this. And I think it's such a shame that it's not, you know, widespread and, and, and universities at an absolute minimum uh, need to lead the charge on this because it's the place where outcomes dictate career chances so, so obviously and so clearly. Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, just like a just like a first job can can do the same thing, and in both cases, yes, there's the resume screening and there's the grading of essays, but then you get the problem of the in person interview. And so much research in recent years shows that the in person interview uh, introduces many many problems into the process, even though it feels like the best way of assessing candidates. But I mean, psychopaths, people who are truly, you know bad people who make bad leaders overall generally perform really well in those situations and are, are good at manipulating interviewers and getting the position they want, moving them up the chain into higher levels of authority. Yeah. I mean, this is like, I, I talked to a lot of experts who study psychopaths and every single one said the same thing to me uh, about superficial charm. These are the two words that are always associated with psychopaths. They're very chameleon-like. They're very good at sort of making you like them for a short period of time. But over a longer period, they can't always manage those psychopathic impulses. So you get these glimpses of dysfunction if they're your coworker or if they're your boss. But in a 45-minute job interview, they can sort of keep it under control. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff about the in-person job interview that's not obviously on the extreme. I focus on the psychopaths in the book because I think they do the most damage. I mean, you know, the, when you get a psychopath at a high level leadership position, it's very, very bad. But there's also just more banal things like being an extrovert. You know, I mean, going in front of a panel of people who you don't know and trying to convince them to like you in a way of, you know, that requires you to be outgoing penalizes introverts who often make exceptionally good leaders. Um, especially when the leadership style right. is not requiring them to be constantly giving big speeches. And, you know, a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of competent mm -hmm. leaders don't need to do that these days. So uh, to me, there's just, there's so much that has been on autopilot. You know, it's just like, this is the way it was done in the past. This is the way it's done now. And what I hoped the book would spark is, con you know, my, my dream email to get 
a year or two in the future after the book sort of percolated is people who say, oh, you know, we hadn't thought about some of these things that, you know, they're, they're mistakes. We've, we shouldn't have done it this way, but we just did it because it always was how we operated and we've changed our yeah, system. Yeah. You know, that's why I wrote the book yeah. because I think it's not hard. It's just, it has to be thought about and actual reforms have to be implemented. You mentioned the psychopaths as particularly toxic leaders because of the damage they can do, but how common is true psychopathy, both in the general population and then importantly, among leaders? Yeah, so this is this is one that varies. Uh, I want to be as accurate as possible because it varies from study to study. What we know for sure is that psychopaths are disproportionately overrepresented in any basic system where power provides lots of authority and possible you know, abuse. Um, so from politics to business, there's clear evidence that psychopaths are overrepresented in the, in the top echelons, how much we don't know for sure. I mean, some studies say four times, some studies say 25, some studies say a hundred times. Um, so I can't say, you know, exactly what the proportion is. It partly depends on the sample size. And one thing that's also really interesting, by the way, which I don't go into in the book, we don't know how much this holds for China versus the U.S. Most of the studies are Western-centric, and most of them are American. Right. So right. it's possible that in you know in Mongolia, there's no psychopaths in power. I have no idea. But uh, the, the point is that they do do disproportionate damage because they don't have the same brains as us. I mean, this is one of the things that, on a philosophical basis, this provides some really interesting questions because their brains are actually basically malfunctioning, where we have empathy switched on by default, psychopaths have it switched off by default. And I talked to a, um, a scientist who studied this and she had this sort of flash of insight during one of the studies where I love, she sort of you know, the, the equivalent of calling an audible, like in a football play midway through the study where she found what she, ex she expected to find. She put the psychopaths in an MRI scanner. She so showed them these horrible images of like animals being abused, children suffering, et cetera. And the psychopath's brains don't light up with emotional anguish like everybody else's. But then she's like, what happens if I tell them to try to empathize with those animals or those children? Ooh, and all of a sudden- Yeah, to put the effort into it, yeah, right? To start to consciously think about what it would be like if you were one of those uh, animals or kids. And all of a sudden, their brains started to mimic normal human brains. And so what she was basically saying is that, you know- normal people, we have the ability to sort of downregulate our empathy. In other words, if you need to break up with someone, you can sort of blunt your emotional sensitivity just to go through with it and cut the cord, but it's not permanent. It's like it's, it's, you're, you're having to consciously downregulate your empathy in a situation. For psychopaths, they can consciously upregulate their empathy, which is why they're good in job interviews. And it's also why they can sort of end up abusing people because they show these little flashes of kindness or empathy when they need to. And then they're, you know, they go back to their default position. But the, the, what I was saying about the philosophical issues, I don't talk about this much in the book, but I, I was thinking about this as I was writing it is like, I mean, these people in a way it's not choice then, right? I mean, if they're, if their amygdala doesn't work the same way as everybody else's, then all of a sudden the sort of culpability questions start to get really thorny because it's just that they're, they're born with a broken brain basically. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't go into that for the precise reason that it doesn't really matter when it comes to society, because whether we should blame the them or not, fact. we don't want them to be yeah. our presidents. And so, you know, the, the fundamental solution is to figure out a way to block them from getting power rather than designing systems like the 45 minute job interview that effectively cater to their personality types. Right. You know, it's funny you say you don't want them to get into power and that is intuitive 
But but there is the other argument to be made, especially in perhaps ancient civilizations, when admittedly, it's it's a bad thing if you work for a psychopath, uh, even short of psychopathy. It's a bad thing if you work for one of these people who is seeking power for power's sake and for self-enrichment. But it can be a good thing if you're in an ancient empire and you're ruled by such a person during a time of high threat that requires bold action and a lack of empathy towards the enemies of the tribe or the empire, that complicates things a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think during a period of conquest, if you're if you're living in an era in which that's the, the name of the game, I, I can see that argument, certainly. And there have been more modern incarnations of it where this uh, Oxford researcher, expert on psychopaths named Kevin Dutton uh, wrote an entire book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths and said that certain professions uh, may be particularly well-suited. So if you've got a bomb disposal technician, one of the things about the broken brains of psychopaths is that their stress response isn't the same as us. So some of the guys who do bomb disposal actually have their heart rate go down when they're in a situation where they're actually disposing a live bomb, uh, disposing of a live bomb and sort of, you know, doing that whole, uh, you know, controlled detonation and so on. So yeah. it's one of the things where you can imagine there may be some places in society that would work for them. My, my, my problem, this is, why I, this is what I did write in the book was I said, okay, great. Like we can have some functional psychopaths and there is some argument. There is an argument to be made that maybe a psychopathic surgeon is going to be really good because they won't think about the human being on the table. They won't have any emotional response during the cuts, but, but how many people are going to sign up to get operated on by that surgeon? You know what I mean? Like, it's like how, (laughs) when does the functional psychopath actually become a dysfunctional psychopath? And are we going to trust ourselves to, to accurately diagnose that this person has sufficiently low levels of psychopathy that they can be a surgeon. So, you know, I, I think that the the sort of conquest argument, as true as it may be, I, I also think it's one of these things where we've evolved our societies in ways where that's no longer desirable. And so my, my big sort of attitude towards all these questions is, is not, you know, was there a point where this made sense evolutionarily? There probably was. It was probably selective and adaptive at certain times in human history to be a psychopath. And you probably saved a lot of people's lives in your tribe or your band or whatever. It's more that by recognizing that our society is different than those periods of adaptation, that we have to engineer systems that make sure that we don't end up succumbing to the stupid thoughts in our brains that used to be smart. And I think that's the that's the point is that there's so much stuff in our cognitive biases where we they're holdovers from a different era where, yeah, I mean, it was great to have a psychopath leading your army when you were in charge of the Mongolian horde, uh, but maybe not <laughs> to be in charge of your local school board or, you know, right. to be your homeowners association president. And unfortunately, I think we have quite a lot of psychopaths in homeowners associations these days. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the related areas to this is the, the system effects and to what degree power seeking behavior, corruption itself is, is inherent in the system or more due to system effects than individual differences. And I like the fact that you identify a, a natural experiment of sorts to get at this. And this had to do with diplomats in New York city, primarily at the United Nations, I, I presume diplomats in New York city and their horrible record of not paying parking tickets. And then Mayor Bloomberg did something to change that. Talk talk through that and why you think that's illuminating 
about corruption and the the change that the system can make? Yeah, so there's there's sort of two schools of thought. If you think about why people behave badly, one school is bad people behave badly, and the second school is bad systems make people behave badly. So what's what's interesting about this is the the natural experiment, which is to say, scientists didn't design this; it just happened by accident. But it provides a really good insight. Is in this sort of pre-enforcement period, diplomats who parked illegally didn't have to pay their fines. They had diplomatic immunity. So that meant that they could park wherever they wanted to in New York City and they wouldn't have to pay up. As a result of that, $18 million in fines went unpaid from UN diplomats. I think it was like 150,000 parking tickets over this period. And Mike Bloomberg finally said, enough is enough. You know, We're going to impound the cars. We're going to create consequences with sort of a three strikes you're out policy. And almost overnight, the, the behavior changed. So what, what what happened in the pre in the pre-enforcement period, what you would expect happened. The Norwegian and Japanese diplomats who are come from you know rule following cultures, rule following systems, uh, where corruption is low, ended up parking legally almost all the time. You know, the average diplomat had zero parking tickets. Places at least early in their tenure yes, as a diplomat. Yes. So this is <laughs> I, I'm gonna get to that in a second. So the the the, the people who are from you know Egypt and other sort of more corrupt cultures, they had sometimes, I think it was like 160 parking tickets per diplomat on average. I mean, crazy numbers. Wow. And then the enforcement kicked in. No other changes. The only thing that happened was all of a sudden accountability was introduced into the system. And the Egyptians started parking like the Norwegians immediately. But the wrinkle there, because the, you know, the initial conclusion is, oh, well, it's just the system. But the wrinkle there was that the longer that the Norwegians were in New York, so if the diplomat was there for six months, they were going to follow the rules. If they were there for six years, they started to park illegally more, not 160 times illegally, but they started to test the limits. And, you know, so I think I think the lesson here is that, yes, you know, the system does condition the behavior quite a lot. The only thing that might be slightly confounding, and this is where, you know, this, these these stories are complex, is that. To become a diplomat who represents the UN from Egypt requires you to be a sort of corrupt, shady individual. To become a diplomat who ends up representing the UN, uh, representing Norway at the UN, requires you to be squeaky clean. And so, you know, you're, you're, in some ways, it's not a perfect comparison. But I think broadly, the lesson is that the system, the accountability, really changes behavior. And so, you know, that's a hopeful message, actually. Because it would suck. It would be a terrible thing if we just fed fundamentally good and fundamentally fundamentally bad people, because then the solution would just be try to screen out the bad apples and get them away from power, which is also you know part of the answer. But I like the idea that we can engineer solutions, that we can create systems that have high levels of accountability or high levels of oversight that mean that even the bad people among us actually behave okay when they end up in positions of, of authority. And because I don't think we're ever going to get to like 100% weeding out the bad apples, I'm in favor of systems that at least make it so the bad apples can't do so much damage when they end up in, uh, on top. We have to turn to the line that almost everybody brings up as soon as you talk about corruption, which is the old Lord act in line, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you actually, you quoted it correctly too. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. What, 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 is, what is true 
in that from the the research that you've you've dug into what is true about that phrase and and what is not yeah the, the reason i said that you quoted it correctly is because everybody they, they take out the tends to i i agree completely with lord acton when uh. it's power tends to corrupt most people say power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely um tends to is definitely true um we we have evidence that this is the case so there's lots of psychology and neuroscience research that I talk about in the book that shows power actually changes your brain and it changes your thought processes. Um, one of the very simple ways of understanding this that I, you know, I, I think there's all these studies and so on, and, and, and lots of them point in the same direction. But one that's very intuitive is just uh, drawing an insight from Hegel, the, the philosopher, who was talking about the asymmetric relationship this couple hundred years ago between a master and a slave. And he says, you know, what the master understands about the slave is sort of irrelevant for the master's prospects. They, they're not dependent on them. So if you don't know much about the slave's personality in that situation, it won't affect your outcomes. The slave is completely dependent on the master. And if they misunderstand the master, they will get beaten. They might get killed. So they end up with this, this sort of asymmetric relationship where it's obvious that the person below must pay attention to the person above precisely for the reason of this asymmetric power relationship. This in the modern era is why bosses often forget the birthdays of their employees, but the employees almost always remember the birthdays of their bosses. And so, you know, <laughs> my, that is, it's, it's not a profound insight that hasn't occurred to people probably, but it's one of the drivers of why power corrupts because it causes you to start thinking of people below you as less relevant for your success. And, it's a, it's a mistake, right? I mean, the success of good leaders actually is completely dependent on the people below them. But psychologically, mm -hmm. people in power tend to get trapped in these in these uh, neurological traps where they start to think, oh, it doesn't matter as much. I need to look up, not down. And of course, there's lots of evidence that more powerful people uh, tend to be more abusive, tend to be prone to being jerks, tend to be more selfish. There's one study that I like that just, you know, it compares power, powerful people to less powerful people. And they say, you know, if you roll a dice and you roll a six, we'll give you some cash. Would you like to roll the dice or would you like this neutral third party to roll the dice? And the powerful people almost always say, I'd like to roll it. Now, of course, it's completely random. They can't control the dice roll any more uh, than, than the neutral third party, but they have this thing called illusory control where powerful people tend to believe that outcomes that are random are attributed to them. So you can imagine how that operates in politics, right? I mean, something something good happens, you you always say, oh, that was because of me. Something bad happens, oh, that was because of the system or, or accidents or whatever it is, which is a really problem, you know, problematic cognitive bias because leaders can't learn from their mistakes if they're only attributing mistakes to other people and they're attributing successes to themselves. So lots and lots of evidence that suggests this. Um, one of the more intriguing studies on the neurological level that I, I discovered, and I interviewed this guy who, who ran these studies with, with monkeys, macaques, was how it actually affects your dopamine receptors in your brain. And so basically, the, the, the short version, I talk about this at length in the book, but the short version is you take these monkeys, they're in pens alone, so there's no power hierarchy involved. You then put them into a group of four, and within 10 minutes, there's a clear ranking one to four. The, the researchers can tell who's one, who's four, who's three, who's two, et cetera. So then what they do after they've developed this dominance and submissive hierarchy is they scan the monkey's brains and they also measure them. They eventually dissect them and so on. Uh, and they find changes to the physical structure of the brain and the chemical cocktail within it 
in the powerful monkeys compared to the submissive monkeys. And this happens as a result of the social structure, because when they rehouse them into a different group, sometimes the one will become a four in the new group. And again, their brain chemistry changes. So, you know, there's something actually happening. And I think this is where, you know, people have observed this, Lord Acton observed it, and we actually have some pretty good evidence. My point, though, is that a lot more is happening. I think if you stop at the power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely sort of bumper sticker or cocktail conversation line, you've radically misunderstood the complexity and nuance of what's actually happening when around leaders, because this is just one very small part of the dynamics of why we get bad people in power. Yeah, we, we definitely have plenty of evidence in the modern world of both sides of this, of bad systems people come in who looked like they might be a reformer. I mean, just look at Assad in Syria. When when he first came into power, people thought, well, you know, he's, you know, an ophthalmologist and he's been in the West and he has the right ideas. Um, and we all s- see what happens. There's there's evidence of this in, in at least anecdotes, but there is perhaps less frequently, but there is some evidence on the flip side about a good person remaining a good leader, even in a bad system. And you can reflect just on the Roman Empire here, because we have good documentation on many emperors, very, very thin on some. But you did have a few emperors in a system that was proven very susceptible to corruption and very easy for a Caligula or a Nero to to do horrible things. But even after those examples, you have a, what, a Vespasian come in or a Trajan who comes in and while not perfect, behaved very well in a position that it would have been easy to be an absolute monster. So there's there's something that just doesn't ring true about absolute power corrupting absolutely in in every case. But talking about the exceptions doesn't really help you because you're still not going to roll the dice with a leader and say, well, because we had a Vespasian once in history, we're probably okay getting a having a system that has all the incentives for the leader to be an absolutely corrupt dictator. Yeah, I mean, so this is something where I completely agree with you. And I, I, I draw on the example of Cincinnatus at the end of the book um, because he's this person mm-hmm. who's brought in to power twice and both times gets out of power as quickly as he can. Uh, he doesn't want it. And one of the sort of maxims that I tend to think is that the people who are probably going to be best at wielding power are those who least want it. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about the rotten systems and the good leaders because one of the things, it was one of the trips that I was planning to do um, that was a victim of the pandemic, actually. I, I booked the tickets for April of 2020 and, you know, the, the, the flight didn't happen. Um, I was going to go to time. Singapore because Singapore hmm. has, you know, still has an authoritarian political system, but it has really cracked down on corruption. And it transformed in, in the span of several decades from this very, you know, sort of economic backwater that was absolute, you know, den of smuggling and corruption and all sorts of stuff to one that's, you know, it's authoritarian, but it is very clean. And it's one of those aspects where occasionally this just happens, you know, somebody comes along and they make it their mission to try to clean up a system. And sometimes they succeed. And my point, as you say, is not to discount those people. I mean, I focus on bad leaders more than good leaders because they do disproportionate harm, but there's plenty of good leaders. There's plenty of people who rise to the occasion. We have this, you know, a lot of people listening will know someone in their life who, you know, had the temptation to behave badly in a position of authority and didn't. And so it's not that they don't exist. It's just that my point is we can decide how often they exist. 
you know, in, in, in reasonably good systems, like the United States, as, as much as a dystopia as it looks like, you know, when you watch the headlines these days, it's still in terms of global systems, one of the most highly regulated where lots of rules exist, the, the laws actually usually matter, et cetera, et cetera, things that cannot be taken for granted in the majority of countries around the world. And yet, you know, we still only occasionally have good leaders. And I think that's something where, you know, we just have to be aware that if you don't have those systems in place, it's going to be much, much worse, which is why, you know, when I talked about accountability mattering in the, the New York parking tickets example, it's why when I think about contemporary U.S. politics, I think, okay, you know, Democrat or Republican, if you committed crimes, holding that person accountable is so important for ensuring that the next generation doesn't think that this is just what politics looks like. Um, so, you know, it's as I say, it's, I, I, I think sometimes people get the wrong impression about my views of leadership when they assume that I think that everybody in power is bad, which is not true. It's just that I think they're disproportionately harmful. And so therefore, we have to focus on them a little more because, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to blunt the damage rather than trying to say anyone who runs for office is a monster. That's, that's obviously not true. We can just make fewer monsters get into office. And I think that's what you should focus on. And that's that's really the key is what what does all of this tell us about attracting either the incorruptible or reducing the incentives for corruption? And, and you have some ideas like trying to screen out corruptible people and trying to use randomized leadership where possible or rotations of leadership positions. But I want to drill down on a, on a few of your ideas. One of them is to create frequent potent reminders of responsibility. Uh, talk through some examples of this and, and how you think that that can work on a large scale to help reduce corruption in leadership. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I've sort of just thought about for, for many years about the shifts in society where it's easier and easier to abuse people who are far away abstractions. We've, we've engineered this in society much more recently. I mean, this is true both with Zoom culture, but also with outsourcing and the fact that, you know, we have downsizing consultants who fire people who you've never met because then you don't have to have, you know, a poisoned relationship with the person you actually know. So the idea here is with this concept called psychological distance. Psychological distance refers to the emotional triage that human beings conduct in order to sort of protect ourselves. So, you know, if we were constantly as upset by a starving child half a world away as we were by a threat to a family member or a close friend, we would be in constant anguish. So instead, what we do is we triage. We have the sort of inner circle of people that we care about a lot, and then it sort of goes out from there. So, you know, it goes family, friends, maybe coworkers, you know, et cetera. And then you eventually get to a point where you don't know somebody exists and you don't think about them. Now, the more that the person is psychologically close to the center, the harder it is to abuse them. That's true. Even for psychopathic abusive personalities, they often will find it harder to uh, you know, abuse people who are closer to them. It's not always true with the extreme psychopaths, but for the, for the most part, this is a truism for humans. So the question I asked was, how can we make sure that people are more likely to see those underneath them in power structures as real human beings rather than abstractions they don't have to care about? Right, and, right. And the two sort of the, the stories I tell that juxtapose this, you know, it was it's one of these ideas that came about as a result of the research that I was doing because I talked to Ken Feinberg, who was the lawyer who oversaw the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, had to decide 
he had to decide how much a life was worth. He had to decide how much money are you going to give a family when they've lost someone in 9-11 or who was injured in 9-11. A horrible, horrible thing to have to do, right? Yeah. But one of the things he kept on bringing the conversation back to that I thought was really illuminating was he said, look, this was awful. Every day was awful. My nine to five was go to the office and try to put a price tag on a human being. But I decided that if I did that and I didn't know who I was actually assessing, that I would become emotionally dulled to it, that all of a sudden this this would become easy for me. And I, I knew that if it became formulaic, I would make mistakes or I would not you know, grasp the gravity of the situation and I would undervalue lives or whatever it was. So instead what he did was he met with as many families as he possibly could. I think over 800 families he had personal meetings with where he asked them to tell, you know, tell me about your son or daughter who died. Tell me about your mom who died. And, you know, he said it was excruciating, but he said that that was crucial to him making good decisions because he never thought, oh, it's just, you know, case 54321 who I'm going to decide about. And this is the exact opposite of what I was talking before, where anonymity works when you're grading a student. Uh, Anonymity is really bad Mm -hmm. when you're making potentially abusive decisions or potentially life-changing decisions about people who deserve to be treated as individuals. So the flip side of this, and this, you know, again, it was one of these things I didn't plan to write the book this way, but it was the absolute opposite when I met with John Yu, who was the lawyer who worked for the Bush administration, who authorized, depending on your politics, the enhanced interrogation yes. memo or the torture memos mm-hmm. uh, from mm-hmm. the Bush from the Bush White House. And, you know, whatever people think about that decision and how he came down on it and what he authorized, what what really struck me wasn't, oh, he's, you know, a bad person, a good person, he was right, he was wrong. It was how dispassionate he was in talking about it. Now, I pushed him on this. I kept saying, I've made you know intellectual choices and logical arguments and all this stuff, and I haven't lost sleep over them. But those choices haven't led to other human beings being waterboarded. Uh, no, you know, and not yet. I mean, who knows what happens in your future? Fingers but, crossed. But yeah, Good that's, God, yeah, that's a different level than what than what you were talking to him about, where his dispassionate detached analysis was was used uh, in these programs. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, he kept on saying like, look, I'm sorry, it was a straightforward legal question. I know you want me to say I lost sleep over it, but I didn't. And I'm just trying to be honest. He's like some of my colleagues did. And, you know, we different people react to this in different ways. And, you know, I haven't I haven't verified this and I don't think he would tell me even if it were the case. But I write about it in the book. I'm like, I suspect that John Yu hasn't been in the same room as someone being waterboarded. Now I could be wrong about that. Maybe he was taken to 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 one of these sites, but it's 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 you know, I think it would affect his thinking. Now on the one hand, somebody else might push back and say lawyers aren't supposed to do that, right? Lawyers aren't supposed to have uh, passionate yeah. beliefs or emotional beliefs. They're supposed to interpret the law. The symbol of fairness in our judicial system, the symbol of fairness is Lady Justice, who has a blindfold on for exactly that reason. Completely. And so I, compl- I, I, I accept that argument, except for the principles of, of justice and law require an understanding of what you're actually agreeing to. Because you know the Constitution doesn't say you can or cannot waterboard. You're, you're trying to align abstract principle one from the Constitution with real world punishment from you know the counterterrorism approaches, and so mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. to me it's like you, you it's not that he's supposed to be emotional; it's that he's supposed to understand what's actually happening. And I think for that you have to have 
you have to put yourself in situations that can be emotionally distressing when you're in power more often than not. Because the people who use downsizing consultants to fire their employees who they used to be friends with or played softball with, I think that messes up their view of leadership. I think they have to understand, yes, I'm going to make this decision. It's the right decision. It's a logical decision. But I need to understand that the cost of this is extremely serious to somebody who's being affected by it. And therefore, I'm going to redouble my efforts to make sure I don't have to make this decision in the future. I think that happens to people naturally when they see the consequences of their actions in leadership or if they see the, the, the fallout from their abuse. So my argument is basically engineer more automatic steps for which leaders have to confront people who are actually being affected uh, by their decision-making. And it would make a more psychological, healthy style of leadership. You can't do it completely. I mean, Fortune 500 companies, the CEO is not going to shake hands with every employee every day. I mean, it's obviously not going to happen. But they should understand the harms they're inflicting so that they treat decisions with the appropriate level of gravity uh, as they should. Because too often people do become abstractions when someone has a lot of power. Okay. Uh, another dynamic for improving leadership, or at least reducing corruption in leadership, is realize that people who are watched tend to behave better. And a corollary to that, that oversight should not be focused as much on, if you will, the masses who can be corrupt and do things, but but on the leaders, because they're the ones who can do massive, horrible things across entire institutions and countries with their corruption. So this is easier said than done. How do you effectively guard the guards themselves? Yeah. So I, this is another one of those things where I went down a, an intellectual rabbit hole where I hadn't been before the sort of anthropology of religion and all sorts of aspects of what does it mean to be watched? What does accountability mean in this, in the large span of human history? And there's some really interesting research. Uh, there's a book called Big Gods, uh, if people want to check it out. It, it's by a, a professor named Aaron Noren Zion. And, and basically what he says is throughout human history, there was this great leveler for the most part, you know, not, not, not in extremely modern times and, 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 you know, Western democracies. But for most of human history, big gods, in other words, omniscient deities who live in the sky above and watch us were widely believed to be in operation. And that was a great equalizer because whether you were the king or the peasant, you both ended up having to answer to the same big God. And that person uh, or deity, so to speak, was always able to see what you were doing. So even if you could get away with something, you had to grapple with that question of I'll pay for it you know, in this life or the next. As you switch to more modern societies, a lot of the move towards secularism in advanced Western democracies has meant that the watched aspect of this has been replaced by surveillance societies or policing or some sort of oversight for which you credibly believe that if you commit a crime, you may be held accountable, even if no one's watching. And so that has been true, except for in some societies, that means that the people on the top who are actually in charge of the police or who are you know, in charge of the, the surveillance systems, don't have to fear it as much. They can get away with it. They can manipulate the system. In some societies, they can pay bribes. So you create an imbalance where previously it was more equal because the, the, you know, the big God treated kings the same as peasants. Now, if that's the case, then you have to think, how do we engineer a system to sort of make a more favorable balance? And the point I was making uh, in, in, in this chapter is 
you know, Enron didn't get brought down by somebody stealing paperclips. You don't have you don't have the person who's taking a lunch break that's five minutes too long destroying a company. And yet that's where the surveillance systems are. I mean, in, in 2021, there was a move towards this where new technologies came out where people have some people have sensors in their chair for their home office to show whether they're physically sitting there. You know, it's 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 dystopian and how little trust yeah. there is in the average employee. Now, the CEO, I can guarantee you, is not sitting on one of these chairs. And what I what I was trying to argue here is the people who do the most harm are in the corner offices that are opaque, while the people who are watched are the ones who are in the open plan offices and the cubicles who can't bring down a company. And so, you know, we have to invert that relationship. Now, it's not I'm not in favor of mass surveillance in general. Uh, as a sort of ramping this up in terms of, you know, every company should just have cameras everywhere and it should be, you know, trying to catch the the break room, you know, sandwich thief with some sting operation. I'm more saying that when it comes to positions of very high authority where they can do serious damage, serious levels of damage if they misbehave, those people, their authority should come with a commensurate level of being watched. And right now, I don't think we're doing that. I think we're actually doing exactly the opposite, where the sort of keystroke logging on the company laptop only happens for the lowest level employees who can't do anything really that harmful. So we have to invert that and and go back to that era where all people at least feel, feared some level of consequence for bad behavior. And you can understand someone who is a bit skeptical of this point, because for all of its ills, the, the United States of America has a system better than most in human history at holding leaders accountable. There are things like regular elections. There are things like, in some cases, recalls. There are transparency laws, unlike most government in most of history. There's even something called the Hatch Act, where you know elected officials can't do certain political things related to partisan activities and their own re-elections. And yet in recent history, we have seen blatant violations of things up to and including the Hatch Act with no punishment whatsoever, which doesn't seem to bode well for a system of guarding the guardians. Yeah. So I, I, I love I love that way of phrasing it because I think the the strange thing when someone like me, as I have throughout this interview, talks about systems and talks about reforming rules and so on, is this idea that rules are somehow separate from people. And they're not, right? I mean, that's the thing that we always tell ourselves, like, oh, the Constitution has endowed the US with certain structures and so on, <laughs> which is true, but they only matter if people enforce them. The, you know, right. Accountability only exists if people care about a crime. Because if you're if you're a politician and the way of holding politicians accountable is impeachment or they lose at the ballot box, if your voters don't care because uh, you know you're you're doing something to beat the other party, the other tribe, so to speak, and you know your crimes pale in comparison to theirs, or so they think, then the accountability disappears. So the rules are you know in in a rule of law society like the U.S. is broadly. Yeah, I mean, it does deter some bad behavior. It does create some oversight. I think, I think the way I would put this is not to say that these are um, unimportant or meaningless, because I think that if Donald Trump was put into Turkmenistan, I think he would do some really bad things. <laughs> you know, I think, I think if the rules were off, I think, and there was mm -hmm. no accountability whatsoever, I think he would have behaved 
much worse uh, than he mm-hmm. did in the United States. So yeah, I mean, the, the rules matter, but they they also intersect with political culture. They also intersect with norms. They also intersect with voting behavior. And that's why the complexity of this, every time you start to sort of grapple with one of these big questions, there's another layer uh, to peel off. And so yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the the U.S. doesn't have a perfect track record despite its rules of holding leaders accountable. It's a heck of a lot better than a lot of the places that I do field work, though. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, oh, yeah. you know, in Madagascar, there was a vice president who was arrested with like a thousand kilos of drugs in his car, in his personal car. You know, I mean, it's just like, okay, that's just, well, <laughs> you just bribe the police officer and, and that's it. So, you know, right. we're not, we're not there. You know, Mike Pence wasn't, wasn't like literally g- dealing drugs or anything like that. So, uh, you know, you count your blessings where you can have them. Yeah. And, and of course the implication of this, if taken to an extreme is, is disturbing as well, which is the kind of the big brother, complete and total surveillance, not of the population, uh, but of the leaders. I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people want to go that direction either, where there's uh, complete and total transparency because of the nature of some of the decisions that do need to be made. Uh, like so many things, it seems that there, there needs to be a balance. Um, but right now, if I read you right, your main argument is that the balance is skewed much more towards surveillance of the masses than it is towards uh, transparency regarding leadership and corruption. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not advocating for like you know complete transparency where everything is watched and logged and so on for CEOs, but I am I am trying to say that there are a lot of when when you you know when you look back at the Enron disaster. The books that are written about that are basically saying this could have been uncovered so much easy, you know, so much earlier than it actually was, and it's just that they were insulating themselves, or no one was looking, or the audits didn't, you know, appropriately. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's 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 about a recalibration. It's not let's swing the pendulum from one extreme to the other. It's to say let's think about who can actually do damage. And and I also talk about this with a different point in the sort of solutions part of the book where, with, with randomization. This is where I actually am arguing in favor of some sting operations towards people in power. And it's just this sort of in the back of your mind threat that if you behave badly, you might actually get caught out. So you know, in the NYPD, I talked to the guy who's in charge of internal affairs uh, about a decade ago uh, for the NYPD, and he he helped develop the system of randomized sting operations for cops, where basically they would arrive to a crime scene, there'd be a bunch of cash on the table, maybe some drugs, and they would say, you know, could you just please stay at the crime scene until backup arrives, not knowing that the crime scene was fake and that there were tons of cameras and audio mics and all this stuff picking up what they do to see if they're going to uh, <laughs> steal the money. They also, by the way, yeah. I mean, one of the other ones, I think this is such a funny job to imagine, but they had uh, undercover cops in plain clothes who would try to provoke police officers into punching them uh, to see if they would actually use violence. And if they did, of course, they would either be reprimanded or fired or, or, or even arrested. But the point, the thing that I found really interesting in talking to him, what he said that just like a light bulb went off in my head was he said, you know, all the stuff that you can imagine, you know, happened from this, which is we started to have reduced levels of abuse and so on. And, you know, the sting operations uncovered some crooked cops, all this. But what I what I found absolutely elegant about this was they then surveyed the cops in the NYPD and they said, how many of you have been uh, involved in a sting setup? Like how many of you have encountered this where you know the crime scene was faked? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the real answer was 500. But the answer they got back was 12,000, which meant that 
way more cops were thinking when they came to a real crime scene that this is a setup. And that meant that when they arrived at a place with drugs on the table or cash on the table, they thought, oh, no, no, I'm not going to fall for this. So they behaved well. And I think you don't have to do it a lot, right? I mean, the point with the 500 versus 12,000 is just the threat that every so often you're going to come across a crime scene that's testing you will make you behave well 100% of the time. And I think that's the sort of stuff where a little bit of paranoia, not constant surveillance, not constant, you know, sort of oversight, but just enough, a healthy dose of paranoia that this is all a setup and you're about to be stung could be useful. And, you know, I don't know the legality in different systems of this, but I have toyed with the idea of, you know, if a politician is awarding a contract uh, or a senior official in a government is awarding a contract, there's, to me, to my mind, there's nothing inherently unethical with having occasionally a fake con- a fake company that tries to buy their way to the contract mm-hmm. and see how that happens, you know, just to expose the, the, the cracks in the system, the corruption in the system. And you just need to do it a couple times before every single person in that situation will think, okay, <laughs> it, this seems too good to be true. This is probably a setup. Maybe I should go based right. on who actually deserves the contract rather than who paid the right lobbyist or so on. Yeah, a real reminder of responsibility. It, it need not be frequent. It just needs to be something to kindle that thought in their mind. Well, you know, you, so kindle is the perfect word for the one thing I wanted to say that I don't talk about much in the book. I don't think I even mentioned it, but it was uh, it's from my other work on election rigging because the bad guys have figured this out. So one of the points that I've come to is that a lot of the stuff that actually works really, really well is used in service of people abusing authority rather than stopping abuse. And mm-hmm. so- in, in Kenya, in uh, no, sorry, this was in Zimbabwe. This was in Zimbabwe in one of the elections. Um, they had, I think it was 2007. I can't remember off the top of my head which election it was, but Robert Mugabe's uh, ZANU-PF party was involved in burning down some houses in opposition strongholds in one of these elections where they sort of wanted to send a signal to scare the voters. Like if you vote, you know, you, you, you're free to go to the polls. If you mm-hmm. go to the polls, your house might get burned down. Just, you know, that'd be mm-hmm. a real shame if that happened. And that threat was enough to keep a lot of the opposition voters home in those areas. The next election, they didn't burn down any houses, but they did have henchmen from the regime walking through the streets, shaking matchboxes. You know, you can sort of imagine that sound of the person shaking the matchbox. And that's all it took. It's all it took. You know, the next step, they they got the message. And so one of the points that I've come across a lot in my work is like when it comes to things like randomization of threats, like sting operations, that's happening already. It's just happening to use abusive power more effectively. It's like a weapon against ordinary people. Again, it's not about completely swinging the pendulum the opposite way. It's about recalibrating so that some people in authority have to experience that same phenomenon of of shaking the matchbox, so to speak. Well, in the past, you've researched and written about the decline of democracy and election rigging. And in your more recent project, you've had the opportunity to read up on and tell stories about everything from cult leader bioterrorists to coked up monkeys. So I have to ask, what are you working on next? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about another, uh, another book that I'll be working on in 2022. Um, I, I haven't completely ironed out all the details, but one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is um, how much randomness plays a role in, uh, in human society. So that's, that's the broad mm. contours of the next project. And uh, it comes from my field work where, you know, it sort of goes back to one of those things that we talked about early on in the conversation where, 
you always have a reason why something happened in political science. There's always a theory or mm-hmm. a cause. And I think that sometimes we're making them up. <laughs> I think sometimes things just happen and we have to interpret uh, why it happened. And, and we're, we're deluding ourselves more often than we think. Unless you're a conspiracy theorist, you, you have to admit <laughs> that occasionally leaders have strokes or car accidents happen or airplanes crash. And it's not always a diabolical plot. Sometimes it is a random effect. Yeah. And that, well, that's actually the conspiracy theorist is a lot of good literature in psychology that talks about that where, uh, it's called, I think it's called magnitude bias. And it's basically, yes. if ever there's a big event, yep. there has to be a big cause. And sometimes there's not, and people yep. want to want there to be one. The real poster child for that is Lee Harvey Oswald could not have possibly killed this charismatic, energetic president. It must have been a larger plot because the effect was so large. Yeah. Especially where that one is is particularly strange because it would have been, I mean, the actual way that he was assassinated was so easily done by one person, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the conspiracy theories that involve massive organizations, I can understand where people get to them a little bit more easily because they're they're based on actual systematic organization rather than just one guy with a gun. But, you know, it's to each their own on on the conspiracy theory thinking. We have come to the point, Brian, where we reach into our chatterbox and we remove a random question and close out by asking you to answer this. If you could convince the president of the United States to take one discrete action today related to national security, it would be what? Wow, that is a very good question. Um, my main focus would be on domestic threats for national security, which I think is, you know, I think there's a pendulum shift happening right now, actually, where people are starting to think national security equals domestic security uh, to a much greater degree than certainly was true 20 years ago. I think the biggest thing, and this relates to concepts in my book, would be focus, focus, focus on accountability for January 6th. And what I would like to see happen in in that, uh, you know, oversight, the January 6th commission, but also the Biden administration, the Department of Justice, is too often, and it's happening right now so far, the people who end up being the foot soldiers in a movement go to jail and not the people who sent them uh, in the first place. And and mm-hmm. I would really like to see people who sent the insurrectionists to the Capitol uh, face some accountability rather than just the people who ended up walking into it, because that's yet again, a situation where the people in leadership deserve much more scrutiny uh, than the people they organize. I mean, obviously the people they organize are very dangerous too, but I, I think it's a mistake um, to not go for this. And I think that the reason why this is happening, by the way, in my opinion, is because there's this there's this belief in Washington that if we just cling on to the myth of bipartisanship, everything will be okay. And uh, it's a myth. <laughs> When it comes to threats to security and democracy, uh, you just do what's right and you do what's going to stop it from happening again. And I'm not sure that that's the guiding principle uh, with enough emphasis at the moment. Hey, Brian, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at that was chatter.